Uh, clearly, you want me to go first. Hello and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. This is James in Lyon in France in yet another Private Practice Studio. Hello, it's me again, Daniel P. Brown from the London Private Practice Podcast Studio 4. And random topics generator of the week. Mm -hmm. This time, Dan is pressing the button. Okay. Whoa. Okay, well, this is a good one. In fact, it's come up with two at the same time. Um, We've got cognitive distortions and cognitive bias. Basically, James, how your mind plays tricks on you. And it's one minute into the podcast, we're straight into it. Go, tell me about it. It's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, this is a, this is a massive... You... <laughs> Let's see if I can just giggle for 20 minutes and then it'll just be like a normal episode and we actually start talking about the subject 20 minutes in. <laughs> What tickles your fancy so much there, James, that you that you couldn't hold in that guffaw? Just the fact that it's one minute into the show. We've never got onto a topic one minute in. I guess, uh, you know, fail to prepare and you prepare to fail and f- if you, pre- you do something like that. And um, we did some prep, maybe. Um, I would just like to start by saying that <laughs> all of those words obviously mean that I knew I wanted to say something at the start, only now I can't remember it. <laughs> um uh, no, carry on. Tell me about unconscious biases. No, come on. There was something in that. Let's 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 do a, a small talk. I, I really wish we had a jingle for small talk because you hate it so much that I like at least trying uh, to you know check in, see how you're feeling. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I'm much better at it, but you are fucking awful at it you know like we should have a jingle like small talk small talk private practice small talk private practice small talk hi james how are you doing today very well thank you how are you everything yeah yeah I'm, I'm okay actually yeah i mean i've got a lot going on but i'm managing it relatively well you know i've uh recently had a few health concerns and if anything, it's just highlighted the fact that I've got a really good support network, lots of you know family and friends that are, uh, are willing to be there and uh, make things easier for me. Um, so, so it's been yeah, it's been good. It's been nice. It's been uh, f- feeling looked after. Yeah, there's that. How about? And then what do I do? I respond to that by saying that's nice because. That's another thing that I don't like. When someone just... Uh, when or, No, it's not that I don't like it. It's more that I don't like my response. You've just given me information that I like to hear and you've pretty much told me everything and you concluded it very well and very appropriately. Therefore, I have no follow-up questions. But then you finish talking and you just look at me as if it's my turn. <laughs> and uh, the only thing that is really appropriate, as far as I'm concerned, is to say, um, yes, of course, that was exactly how the information should have been delivered. 
But um, I don't say that because it's unexpected and then it, it, it throws the other person into slight disorder. So I generally, I just have to say sort of like, oh, right, yeah, good, okay. But, but then I seem disinterested. Well, was there anything about it that piqued your curiosity? I mean, like, if you maybe uh, put yourself in the shoes of the listener, because obviously I might not want to talk about those things, and we've talked about that before, you know, that might be the whole summary. That might be everything that I'm willing to share. But was there something in, the, in what I said that might make you want to ask a few questions or not? Because that's also fine, I think. I don't. No, because I would have been bouncing around waiting to ask my question. So if I have nothing to say, then that's, it's not because I have a question that I'm refusing to ask. Cool. That's absolutely fine too. Uh, cue small talk outro jingle. I think I'm actually singing it to the theme tune of an advert for a toy called Keepers. Keepers, keepers, what's inside those keepers? They're like little toys that you could lock things inside. And I think inside the thing you could like like a little say castle there'd be a thing called a keeper which would be keeping your secrets and you could lock that as well so almost like a microcosm in a macrocosm of keeping like all about secrets seems all very suspicious to me and we could probably delve into that but anyway that's going to be the private practice podcast small talk sectional outro and intro theme tune i'll have to work on that another day it's really not obvious at all that that little concluding jingle unambiguously ended the small talk (laughs) true true but i guess one of the great things about this podcast is the free-flowing format you know that flexibility and that kind of lively spontaneity that we find ourselves in each week despite your um desperate need to try and control it into a easily recognizable you know sectionable format um and 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 that's why this works so well I don't have anything to say to in response to that. I don't really know what to do in these situations, and I'm talking. I'm not. I'm not. I don't, I'm not looking for advice for right now. I'm looking for general life advice. When someone says something, and it's just enough. There's nothing more to say, and I don't have a question. And I just don't see this in other people. Other people just make up questions that are unnecessary, or they ask a question that was already answered or they ask a question that's boring because they know now is the appropriate time to respond with something that makes it seem like I'm interesting that I'm interested and they were interesting whereas for me asking a question means you did a bad job of conveying information to me and therefore I it was I'm left lacking so now I need to fix that by asking you a question so that you tell me the thing that you should have told me but didn't Whereas in terms of giving me information, number one, how are you? And number two, uh, why you think the format of the podcast works? You told me everything I needed to know, zero questions. Therefore, what else but to move on? Um, And then in between that, you waffled on with something about a a toy jingle, which I'll only keep in to um, be nice to you. Or no, 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 no. I'll only selfishly keep in to make the editing job more easy for me. That's a, that's a more ruthless way of putting it. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, 
fuck you, but okay. Um, I'm going to find the keeper's jingle and I'm going to send it to you, and you'll, and you uh, and you're going to, you're going to realise just. Well, no, you won't realise anything. But I'm just, I'm just uh, uh, to put it to to make, to be more general. Um, I think that you have two categories of uh, wittering on. One which is funny and or informative, and the other which is just keeping the noise going so that there isn't an awkward silence. And I felt a little bit like if I was making up a jingle on the spot and I suddenly realised that I was doing it to the tune of a, an advert for a toy that I remembered, I would keep that to myself. Why would you keep it to yourself? I mean, what I suppose I'm saying to you is that there's always some unconscious meaning in things that we think have no, you know, uh, conscious decision, like no, you, you had no conscious decision over. Copy image, send to James. Okay, right. Um, that's, that's way more interesting and that's something that I hadn't thought about and that would be a much better way to move on in the conversation than for you to just make chat about uh, an advert and then stop and then look at me. And I can't see you, though. So anyway, uh, listen, I feel like we haven't been talking to the listener and I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm, I'm here with my co-host, James Hall, although I'm not actually here with him. I'm, I'm virtually here with him on, on uh, Skype, Zoom or other... Uh, video calling devices and programs are available um and and we are not in the studio together and i can barely see his face so i'm trying to have this conversation with him but uh, that's it that's nice he's moved around the corner so i can see his little face um yeah perhaps that's what small talk is about james you know sometimes you will just be like right there's nothing more to say there is there are no questions i want to ask that person has summarized perfectly and you can just say nice but other times when they start singing you know jingles from 1980s songs maybe you would want to explore why there is any relevance to that or shoot them down because there is no relevance and get into a kind of a fun playful backwards and forwards now you might look in your chat bar and i've sent you a picture of one of the keepers and it's spelt K-E-Y-P-E-R-S. Very clever play on words there. Because it's to keep your secret, but also to keep your secret using a key. So these little animals, you'd be able to lock and unlock them, and inside you could store things. Keepers, keepers, what's inside your keepers? I think I'm muddling it up with something else now as well, but... I did, I did have a look. I mean, it looks like some sort of like plasticky tat that I never... I mean, I was one of those children that only liked toys if they were tools for me to construct a world. And obviously, I've talked about the, the almost literal version of that whereby I used to build kind of worlds as if it was my own city with roads and trains and airports and buildings and things. But also, if it were... It didn't have to be like literally world building. It could just be a game where you can put things together and really the success is down to your imagination and so on. I don't like completed toys whereby there's just something in front of me and I'm a passive consumer of it for about five minutes until it's boring. So like those, I don't know what you do with those key things, but they look like just a diversion for a child until they get bored and move on to the next diversion, and I used and I used to and still do find things like that 
completely pointless. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I probably agree with you, although I did like things like He-Man, but I don't remember really being one of those kids that could spend hours playing with a you know, He-Man action set. I much preferred to get dressed up in clothes that perhaps I would consider look like He-Man and run around the garden pretending to be He-Man. Uh, I don't know what that says about me. But anyway, Keepers, if you do bother to Google it, listener, you will see very clearly that Keepers in the 80s were designed very specifically for girls. You know, look at the colours. There's a, a sort of a light blue, there's a violet, and there's a purple colour, and it's all sort of pinky on the box. Definitely for girls. So it wasn't a toy that I had. I just remember the Keepers, Keepers, what's inside those Keepers? <laughs> You know, because who gives a shit? Like, like, what secrets do you think a seven-year-old has that anyone would care about? Nothing. They probably put a bit of rock they found in the garden in there. That's the secret. Do you think that we can just draw an absolute unambiguous line under the small talk right now and move on to cognitive biases? Well, if you... I mean, that's a pretty good segue, actually. Absolute, definite... Um, a black and white stopping of one section and moving on to the next section. Cognitive bias and cognitive distortion. <laughs> this episode, I mean, we could have, we could have just, we could have just mucked with the listener's head and just talked, you know, talked about small talk, talked about secrets, talked about, you know, ch- the insertion of childhood theme tunes from adverts, like for the whole hour. No, but- no, stop. I know what's going on here. It's because n- this is one of the episodes where instead of me bringing a topic that I've read about or um, or listened to or whatever and I have my notes and I know the broad realm of what I want to be uh, within the walled garden of conversation and everything on the other side of that is not for today's podcast and you sit there and probably feel reassured about being invited into that walled garden where you can just take a seat but you're kind of a little bit flippant because it's it's not your garden party you've just turned up and so things are just happening to you and you're reacting to them and you know that sometimes when you're a bit flippant in social situations people kind of laugh and think Dan's a real character um so so that's that's probably the way that you would approach a normal episode whereas this one you're the expert you learnt about these things in your training you're the one who has been tasked to bring some material to the table and therefore it is entirely down to you to fail to potentially produce a rubbish episode therefore it's very stressful for you but the easiest way to just make that stress evaporate is to be charming charismatic chatty dan talking about whatever for as long as possible and therefore everyone likes you and everything's going well and you're just at ease and if we get onto cognitive biases then great if we don't who cares but at the end of it you'll feel good about yourself but i am challenging you to stop that now Go straight into cognitive biases and maybe you'll fail, but I will not judge you harshly for that. Um, okay, okay, I, I hear you, I hear you, I hear, I hear, I hear. Hello, listener. James had thought we were going to get straight into it in one minute, but in fact, we're 17 minutes, 50-ish seconds in, and let's get on to today's topic of cognitive bias and cognitive distortion. 
or how your own brain and mind play tricks on you. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, please ignore everything that's gone before because it was just piffily, tittly nonsense. I guess small talk would do. Well, now, it's listen. not. It's not because this is a podcast about psychotherapy. And when you go into psychotherapy and you spend 17 minutes talking about toys from the 80s, the therapist isn't just zoning out, counting down to the real topic. The therapist takes that material as they interpret it. In this case, you're potentially trying to drag out for as long as possible a distraction from the thing you don't want to do. Um, your ideas made massive assumptions about the fact that you had managed to trigger all kinds of um, you know, internal uh, em emotional uh, responses um, and also cognitive responses, which actually is, is perfect for today's episode. But um, you didn't actually. So I'm not worried and I don't think I'm going to fail. But you did talk about how things people say to each other can trigger the emotional state of another person to respond in a way that isn't necessarily helpful, isn't necessarily um, an accurate um, uh, or, or useful response to what someone has said to you. You know, the brain starts saying things back to you in your mind, your internal voice, your automatic thoughts start happening when people talk to you. And, and that's really important. And, it, and it actually, someone may be saying something that might sound or could be interpreted as critical or as even constructive criticism or as... Um, a comment or a description of you as an individual can raise things in the other person. That's that's the that is the basis really of some of what we're going to talk about today. The idea that uh, conversation isn't only surface level. Uh, um, the the external interaction of human beings and the external experiences that we go through, that is not all that there is. And we all know this. This isn't news to anyone. We experience something, we hear something, we take part in something, and then our body and our brain process it. And that's what we're looking at today. But presumably the, the body and the brain receive that information immediately in a nanosecond but in terms of when you say process it, in terms of uh, thinking it over, letting it settle, um, understanding it, that cannot be done in the same nanosecond that is required to react. So therefore, most of the things that happen are automatic and therefore we can look at the biases that in, that inform the automatic reaction and then later then an hour later you can sit in a room and think back over the whole thing and think and, and analyze it and have a completely different reaction to the one you had in the moment yeah absolutely um if we were gonna you know uh, start a reading list for this topic i th um uh, i would probably start with thinking fast and thinking slow daniel kahneman so this this guy is genius. The book's not the easiest book to read. I think I think he's a Nobel Prize economist, maybe potentially a mathematician, and he came up with this concept of uh, type A and type B thinking, or type one and type two thinking. And it's about either you know you you hear the information, you experience the 
event and you have an automatic instantaneous very very fast rapid reaction to it which quite often we believe to be an accurate well thought out true response when in essence it may not be and then we have a second way that our brain can work like a second system which is more um thoughtful more considered more analytical takes longer to respond and both of those sets of thinking everyone does all of the time or most of us do most of the time but neither of them necessarily will come up with the truth the reality the right answer that is the kind of thing we're looking at here today our podcast is sort of um fun bits in between psychology and psychiatry mental health and the mind you know well-being and um uh, you know the day-to-day experience of life it's somewhere in that map of the territory but the the Daniel Kahneman you know different styles of thinking that very much applies everywhere it applies in business it applies even in um, social interactions it applies in in a more of a mental health context and mental illness so that that's a kind of an almost like a a a mathematical and theoretical and social way um, and sort of scientific way of thinking about how our brain reacts to external stimulus. Pretty much everything we're talking about is economics because economics relies on on, uh, personality and behaviour. Otherwise, no one does anything. Um, Pretty much everything we're talking about is mathematical because... Um, the chemical processes in your brain and the patterns of human behaviour that can be measured and stored as data are stored as numbers. And if you look at someone's behaviour over time, a certain amount of interpreting that is looking at the numbers and they reveal things that you can't see in a touchy-feely way. So let's say someone... Let's say you're looking at... um, uh, is someone suicidal? Uh, maybe they have a diary recording all the times they felt suicidal thoughts. Maybe they have tried to commit suicide a number of times. Maybe they are in some kind of institution and you look at things like their heart rate or their alcohol intake, either side of suicide attempts. All of that is numbers and can be put into spreadsheets. And if you're a numbers person, then you're still someone who can contribute valuable information to the realm of uh, touchy-feely mental health that Dan thinks he lives in, potentially, and is separate from the, the numbers realm. Because the numbers person sees the hard facts of X happens, Y is an immediate result... And you only get that information from the data as opposed to listening to what they say in therapy or what they write down in their mood diary. So I think that statistics that are essential to understanding uh, touchy-feely psychotherapy, mental health, mood, feelings, or whatever. Um, and then the same goes for science and politics and diet dietary nutrition all that sort of stuff um physics in other words that it's impossible to understand why human beings act the way they do and why they quote unquote go wrong in the sense of they come to a therapist with a problem that they or their life is not satisfactory they want to um 
overcome an obstacle. It's impossible to fully understand that without at least dipping a toe into the other realms of statistics and physics and politics and all the things that you might think are not something you're qualified to talk about because you've drawn a fence around mental health training. I don't think I did that at all. I, I think I just talked about how the topics that we talk about is broader than just mental health and psychology. I don't think I did do that. But, yeah, would I say I was qualified to speak in a, with a, uh economics or maths or even science mindset? I'd probably say no. So um, I feel like I might have lost some of your arguments there as well. Um, I understand. Let me just reassure you because you seem like you're, you've been thrown into a place of chaos. Uh, let me that whole great big chunk that I just said. I'm boiling it down to uh, st- there's no such thing as psychology and mental health without maths and statistics and physics because you're talking about human beings and their physical capabilities and behaviour is nothing but a series of data points which is maths. So I'm saying that they, those are not other. But at the same time, of course, you're not a mathematician and you're not an expert in analysing data points or whatever. You can't explain to me the the intricacies of the chemical um, uh, reactions that take place in the brain. And therefore, you, what you bring to this conversation is your knowledge from mental health training, of course. So I hope that reassures you that I'm not throwing you into chaos and that I'm sitting here saying, Dan, statistics are necessary. Give me that or else you're going to fail. Oh, phew. What a relief. Um, you're, yes, so you did throw me into chaos, though. So, uh, which, again, is back on topic. You know, um, what we are talking about here within the context of all of those different broader topics is the kind of the, the individual's experience of... Uh, the mind and being alive and and being in a body and um and how those how as individuals we react to external stimulus and and perhaps how we could try and do it in a more comfortable way and um yeah we started with Daniel Kahneman um who is both an economist and a psychologist and um and and he identified these two different ways of thinking fast thinking and slow thinking in essence and he talks a lot about them in his his books um and in his research and i think i brought him up as the first the first example or the first sort of step in this story we're telling today because i i think it's very important for us to know and for the listener to recognize that um there are a number of processes going on and you were asking how quickly we react and we process things and there are both you know the, the, there is both the fast and the slow processing however you know as individuals we often um overly value our own interpretation of almost all stimulus that comes in and our our version of putting the facts together the the information together and our version of 
what we come up with and what what the meaning is behind things um and two of the areas that we wanted to look at which are massive and i think potentially could take a lot more than one episode definitely to do it justice but to have a nice conversation about it potentially that would be okay um but yeah we were looking at cognitive distortions and cognitive biases or cognitive bias um cognitive distortions we've actually spoken about before um uh, it's from work by the um, cognitive behavioural therapist Aaron Beck and also the work was continued by David Burns and we've definitely talked about David Burns's book, um, his most famous book. He's, he's an American psychiatrist and psychologist and therapist. Uh, his most famous book is The Feeling Good Handbook which I've got somewhere here, but I'm not sure where it is now. And he he identified and worked with um, Aaron T. Beck, who is the father of um, cognitive therapy uh, or behavioural therapy. I always forget which one. Um, and they, they sort of together over the course of a few decades developed cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, cognition really just means thinking, you know, um, thinking and processing of information. And cognitive distortions are, um, I guess, biased or inaccurate perceptions or uh, I- inaccurate interpretations that we ourselves as individuals make about the world around us, about the um, the experiences we have and about ourselves. But in order to say that with real authority, that's where you need a context of physics and philosophy because what you've just said is a very audacious claim that there is something that exists in the universe that is real and there is a human being interpreting that thing incorrectly and that is a cognitive distortion and I'm and I'm satisfied with that I don't think we need to go beyond that i don't think you need to give me a history of philosophy and i don't think you need to lecture me in physical reality of the universe right now for me to be satisfied that we can move on with the conversation but i'm just putting a little bookmark there to say that it is not an absolute truth to just pluck out of thin air the idea that somehow the world is a real fact and that somehow the person interpreting it is wrong Okay, okay. Let me give you an example for the cognitive distortions. And let me give you some characteristics of a cognitive distortion, if I can. Um, A cognitive distortion tends to be part of a thinking pattern, although it could also be a one-off in relation to something stressful or something difficult or something negative happening. Uh, in the realm of what we know as reality, not looking at the, you know, the, as you just pointed out, we can't go to the whole metaphysical, universal, cosmic level of what reality is. This is for an individual human being in the realms of normal-ish boundaries of society and interaction. So it's about a pattern of thinking or belief um, that is false or inaccurate, you know, and usually swayed towards the negative, but not always. It can also be swayed towards the positive. And it can also have, it must have the potential to be 
uh, harmful or hurtful or damaging to the individual and also potentially their relationships, potentially those around them. Um, and let me give you an example of this. Um, so let me think about... So generalising is something that everyone can understand. Everyone understands what generalising means. OK, so if we have a single bad piece of feedback about who we are or how we behave, and then we take that bit of feedback and we generalise it and we say that that is what we are. And so we, 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 we hear a negative comment about ourselves. James you're really annoying or James you are pissing me off or James your voice is too loud and you then take that individual single piece of feedback from myself without considering why I've said it what was the context I said it in what was going on for me and you say to yourself you know your internal voice your your internal monologue says oh I am annoying I'm an annoying person. And then you hold a value to that. So in other words, if I've interpreted this correctly, in that situation, the reality is that exclusively in the context of recording a podcast and exclusively in the company of Dan Brown and probably only today, but not necessarily. It could be every time we record a podcast, it could just be this one. I don't know. I have to juggle those two. But those are the only things relevant to my annoyance. And if I go off to meet some friends in a restaurant and there isn't a microphone in front of me and the topic is not mental health and we're not recording a podcast and you're not there, then there is nothing to suggest that I'm going to be annoying. It's kind of whether I'm annoying or not, I have no data to predict that that is of any use whatsoever. I can only, I only have feedback data to tell me that if, for example, tomorrow we record our next podcast, I'm sat here with the microphone, we continue with the same topic and you're the same Dan Brown, I have some feedback to suggest that there's something about me that's annoying and I could think about that and it's useful data, but it's not useful in the, uh, in the brasserie, uh, the pavement cafe here in Lyon with um, Antoine and um, Camille who might find my company scintillating and never see a dull moment or an irritation. Uh I mean, yeah, that's unlikely. But at the same time, yeah, generalising it that you then believe that you are annoying, you are annoying. And then having that affect you in a way that is psychologically damaging or limiting so that you maybe don't want to talk to other people because you, James Hall, are annoying. So that's, just, that's a really simple example. You know, another one would be getting um, uh, feedback at work that actually you need to be... Um, you know, you're not really gelling with the team and perhaps or that, you know, you haven't made you, you haven't integrated into the team and then seeing that as a comment or a criticism of who you are as a person, that you aren't capable, that you aren't um, doing your bit, that you're not working hard enough, that you, 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 your, your brain kind of distorts a piece of information or some feedback into something that it is not 
And then that adds to something that may already be there or may start to develop from this negative, you know, feedback. And it starts to develop and um, outline and kind of um, uh, highlight a belief about yourself. You know, and, and it might be that you're not good enough, that people find you irritating, that people don't like you, that you are a bad person. So the cog- cognitive distortions, and I think they, rec- they recognise something like 10 or ten or 12 of them, um, often are... Uh, it, it's, it's part of that automatic thinking. It's part of that very rapid thinking that it adds to a set of information that somewhere in your unconscious mind or sometimes your conscious mind, but adds to a set of information about you being not good enough. And that's damaging, that, that is limiting, and that is harmful to an individual. So cognitive distortions, and I'm just going to see if I can find a list somewhere so I don't have to remember them all myself. Um, it's not another top 10, is it? Does it if, there's 10 of, if, it, if it's the 10 cognitive distortions, does that mean there's, there's going to be two of them and therefore there's 20? Two of each category. Uh, I'm not sure that it does, but maybe, yeah, I suppose you could think of this in a, either a positive or a negative. So if someone had narcissistic, Machiavellian, psychopathic kind of traits, they may well be able to use all of these kind of thinkings to glorify themselves. Okay, so let's start with number one, or do you want to start with number 10? What do you want to do, James? I like uh, a countdown 10 to 1, but I don't think that the cognitive distortions are on some kind of spectrum of the weakest to the strongest. So we're not really counting down to number one. Therefore, it's only ever going to be an anticlimax. So let's just start at one. Okay, cool. All right, Mike. So number one, the the most famous one, I think you started off with it earlier with one of your comments. Can't quite remember what it was. All or nothing thinking or polarised thinking, also known as black and white thinking. Um, It is an unwillingness to see that there are all kinds of different possibilities in between the being right or being wrong, being good or being bad. You see things in extremes, things that either are amazing or they're rubbish, you know. Uh, Things are either perfect or absolutely the end of the world, the worst thing, total failure, you know, it, it, it's awful. Or in the context of what you just said, if I receive some feedback about my behaviour from you during a recording, which is yeah. I'm annoying, yeah. um, it, it, it's not the same as I'm always annoying in all situations and all contexts, or Dan is always wrong and I'm never annoying. Yeah, exactly. I could have said, James, when you... So, you know, this perhaps, if I had had, you know, in this example, had a little bit more um, energy or or could be a little bit more bothered or considered your feelings a bit more, I could have said, James, when you respond to something I've just said and you take five minutes and you potentially have even 10 or 15 really good points in that, you know, um, monologue, (laughs) monologue, it's really annoying because I am unable to respond to it. Instead, I just said, James, you're really annoying. And you take that then to mean James is really, I, James, am really annoying all of the time in every circumstance. There is nothing more to me than annoying. I am the most annoying person. I am annoyance personified. Yeah, 
So that's it. Um, okay, so on to number two, and it's one we've already mentioned, uh, overgeneralization. It even puts over in front of it. I think generalization, probably good enough for me, but um, it's... Um, it's taking an individual event to be a factual pattern gives the information to say that that thing is true all the time. So to fail in an exam or to get a low mark in an exam means that you are a failure. I'm perfectly happy with this in every way except it to some extent is exactly the same as the last one. So... Dan tells me I'm annoying in this situation and I generalise that I'm annoying in all situations. Uh, it's the black and white thinkingness of it is that I cannot imagine a realm in which I am sometimes annoying and sometimes not annoying. I can only be one thing or another, therefore black and white. And then that's supposedly... Um, cognitive distortion number one and then supposedly cognitive distortion number two is generalization but and therefore generalization is that because i am annoying in this situation i must be annoying in other situations those are maybe it's just maybe that's it maybe those are two cognitive distortions one is that I can only be annoying or not annoying. There's nothing in, the, in between. And the other is that because I'm annoying right now, I'm always annoying. But we gave an example for number one that I think is an example for numbers one and two. Yeah, 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 maybe. So firstly, I think it's important to note that there's definitely overlap with all of these. And the, using these phrases enables people different ways of understanding a similar um, a similar problem, which is which is cognitive distortion. You I'm see? going to see if I can make all ten of them relevant to I'm annoying, <laughs> and in doing so, I will prove that I am annoying. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you're going to be able to do that. Uh, I think you will be able to prove that you are annoying, and I have no doubt that <laughs> that all of these will apply as well. Um, yeah, I think I think one of them is about a belief. You know, all or nothing is a belief. It's I'm either this or I am that. And overgeneralizing is almost about bringing bringing in that information and turning it into a belief. So it's 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 a part of the same. All right, okay. This one you're gonna I mean instantly tell me a mental filter. It even says in the in in the in the little blurb about this one, it's similar to overgeneralization. How about that? How do you think about that? Um, <laughs> Again, dwelling on a single negative comment made by one person and viewing that as um, the reason for uh, a specific set outcome. You, you get rid of all of the information. A mental filter gets rid of all of the information that is contrary to the negative belief or the negative thought. So uh, filtering out anything good and leaving only with the bad. So, you know, you could have 12 bits of feedback from someone and one of those bits of feedback or two of them are, are negative or constructively critical and focusing only on those and thinking that they are more relevant than the 10 bits of, you know, positive or, 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 or yeah, or, or good feedback. So you could tell me nine things during the recording of this episode that are all positive, like, James, your answer was excellent. James, you have 
appropriately put the microphone at a sensible distance from your mouth. All these things are all uh, positive feedback. And then after nine positive things, you say that I'm annoying because, and without the context of you spend five minutes answering a question with lots of different things that are too overwhelming for me to respond to. And that's frustrating because I kind of want to respond to them all, but then that wouldn't make, that, that isn't appropriate right now. And so I'd rather you didn't do that. And I'm shortening all this to James, you're annoying. And I come out of this podcast, ignoring the nine positive things. I don't spend a nanosecond thinking about how wonderfully distanced I am from the appropriately elevated microphone i don't think about any of the times when i gave an interesting reaction to something you said i only think about james you're annoying yeah absolutely yeah and more than that you 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 dwell on it you you filtered everything else out and you're you're focusing on that annoying so it's a it's an it's an experience as well all of these have a kind of an experiential consequence it isn't just the the processing in the context of daniel kahneman again you know there's the there's the slow version and the fast version of this so a lot of these things that we're talking about here these cognitive distortions happen very quickly but then we use the information we generate from them to to analyze in a slower way and the cognitive distortion has meant that the information that we're using the data we're using to make the analysis isn't actually good data it's not clean data it's say you know in in research we might get uh, if i use questionnaires as an, as an example if we had it when i have had a thousand data points on say 250 questionnaires with like four questions on it so i've got 250 questionnaires with four questions on it and if i really really want to come up with an accurate description or statistical um, description of what all of those questionnaire answers mean and what that's telling us about the sample group I have to go through all of those questionnaires and I have to really remove the ones that aren't either answering the question or haven't fully answered the questions have not given a, a have not used the questionnaire as it should be you have to clean the data to be able to get the you know the, the right the, the the right set it has to be right going in otherwise if i'm adding in all kinds of things that aren't answering the question and using that as part of my analysis i'm going to come up with something that is totally distorted at the end of it um for example you can tell with a lot of questionnaires when someone has just ticked all the answers that you think they want to you know that that the 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 answerer thinks the questioner wants to hear you really should be removing those. So like, for example, you give me a questionnaire about my mood. And when I look at the questions, number one, how many times today have I had suicidal thoughts? Uh, none, um, up to five or more than five. I think, well, obviously, you're trying to work out if I'm depressed. So if I say more than five, you'll think I'm depressed. And I think that's what you want to see. So if I tick that answer, I'm just giving you what you want. So I'm going to tick the opposite answer so that I can show you that actually you don't know me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very difficult one to be able to like, 
data cleanse. But I suppose my, my, my point is that actually you have to be really careful with the data that you're inputting into an analysis in order to come up with an accurate answer. And obviously there's loads of different ways of doing this. You know, it isn't up to the... Um, the researcher to go through those questionnaires and necessarily say, oh, I'm not going to include this one. But in essence, what it is, is to have a system in place whereby the questions themselves are able to filter out what is an accurate answer and what is not. And then through the process of analysis, actually the, um, you know, whether it's done mathematically or whether it's done by hand, that there is a robust system in place to analyse the data so you can tell what is accurate and what is not. Isn't one of the systems to basically ask the same question multiple different ways and with a high frequency so that you can look at consistencies or inconsistencies amongst, you know, for example, like questions 1, 7, 14, 19, 21 and 28 are all basically the same question. If you give yep, yep, broadly yep. the same answer to all of them, it's trustworthy data. If you give different answers to all of them, then it's too sporadic and unreliable. Exactly. It's in the design of the question. I recently had to do a... I thought this was brilliant. I recently had to do a... What I can only really describe as a psychopath test for one of my bosses. Um, and, and what you, they do is they send the questionnaire out to about 50 people. And it's about... Um, values and attitudes in the workplace and values attitudes and behaviors in the workplace and you have to answer about 100 maybe even 120 questions on how your your boss responds to people you know do they favor certain people are they do they make racist comments are they hurtful do they make sexual jokes would they use their power and authority over you anyway four of the questions out of the 120 say answer uh, number three if you have read this question Right. So you can't just use this. You can't just go. Yeah, she's really good. She's really good. She's really good. She's never racist. She's never sexually inappropriate. She, you can't do that. You have to. Have, and if you don't answer those four questions, they will probably completely discount your answers. So different systems like that. Anyway, in terms of talking about cognitive distortions, and I think probably cognitive bias might need to be our next episode, James. But in talking about cognitive distortions, what we're asking people to do is to put in that kind of data cleansing system to give someone a step back and say, oh, is my brain doing any of this? Um, and the answer will be yes, by the way, unless you've been through therapy, unless you know all of this, unless you've already been through a process whereby you're kind of cleansing the data and kind of making sure that the data input is accurate and making sure that there's nothing in the way of the analysis being um, uh, valid, then if you haven't done that, then this is this is why we're talking about it. Giving someone some space to try and use fast thinking and slow thinking, plus an extra layer, a third layer of thinking to, to, to work between the two systems. In terms of data collection and in terms of the efficacy or the efficacy is such, is, is such an off-puttingly dull, worthy word to use here. What I mean is, like, is this a complete waste of your life to think about or to do to get involved in as the tester or the testee? Entirely depends on the extremely successful design of the data collection process. 
Um, that's all very vague. So let, let's use Dan, Daniel Kahneman for, as an example. Let's say I want to know if I have any of these biases. I would trust Daniel Kahneman in his 80s with all of his proven knowledge to be pretty good at collecting data. And if he collected data, if he gave me 100 questions and he took my answers and he suggested ways in which I am biased, I would value that information because it's 80-year-old Daniel Kahneman who knows lots of stuff. If, however, it was 24-year-old trainee uh, Hugo, and Hugo kind of gives the impression of being a little bit other than neutral, then whatever Hugo does, I'm entirely sceptical. And so, for example, let's give an, let me give another example of something where I'd be sceptical. Let's say I work in an office... And because it's uh, hashtag zeitgeisty trending in 2021, the HR department has decided to implement unconscious bias training to make sure that we're not all racist wannabe Hitlers. And so I'm given 100 questions. Ultimately, what they're trying to work out is, I'm a white male who works in this company and I employ people. Am I just combine harvesting my way through life, gleefully ripping up the CVs of pregnant black lesbians and putting them in the bin and hoarding a collection of people just like myself, um, drawing them to this company like a magnet and making this company extremely uh, biased and part of the evil institutional racist machine that is the whole of society. And they want to know the answer to that. So in order to know that answer, they've written 100 questions. I'm going to answer those 100 questions, and I'm either going to get a yay... I'm a good person and they'll hand me a copy of The Guardian and give me a really unambiguous knowing look or there's going to be a red uh -uh, like I'm wearing a Donald Trump MAGA cap and they're more or less going to think that there's nothing different between me and Hitler. And so, you know, everything is hinging on this. However, the test itself was made by someone who is a 24-year-old Hugo who's got sort of like um, a B in uh, B-Tech business studies. And Hugo has kind of um, read, skim-read skim a few chapters of a book about cognitive biases. And he's, yeah. he's kind of heard a few things on The One Show or wherever you are in the world, <laughs> some sort of like magazine show about popular psychology, which has led him to believe that all white men like me are basically the same in that we're all unconsciously racist. And he's written the questions to basically prove that and therefore, the questions themselves are as biased, if not more biased, than my answers. And therefore, the data is useless. So in other words, I, I want Daniel Kahneman to write that test because I feel like he has spent his whole life considering how you would write that test so that the data is worth the paper it's printed on. And therefore... Whatever comes out of that, I wouldn't take it as absolute truth in the same way that I consider gravity to be a truth, but I would value it because it's Daniel Kahneman. I do not value what 22-year-old Hugo has done because I think Hugo is just looking to prove that I'm a racist and he will do that. 
Right. Sorry. So just just summarise again. Just that's that was quite long. Can you just summarise again what your actual argument there? You got Hugo. You got Daniel. Hugo's a twenty four intern that can't be bothered to do his work properly. Would I rather he write the questionnaire? Absolutely. Yep. And then you've got um, absolutely not. Sorry. Uh, and then you've got Daniel Kahneman, eighty year old genius. Nobel Prize winner um, who has spent his entire life looking at these kind of ways of analysing and understanding information and making making valid interpretations of that information to make inferences and predictions and, you know, ideas and beliefs. Um, are you asking me which who I would rather, or are you saying that these are two different kinds of thinking and the distorted thing, the distorted cognitive, um, uh, distorted cognitions are more Hugo and less Daniel? No, so I'm essentially asking you who would you rather, and obviously the answer is Daniel Kahneman, but it's not so much to get the answer. Daniel Kahneman rather than 22-year-old Hugo. Oh, I see. But it's yes. more yeah, to yeah. say that there are, for every one Daniel Kahneman, there are a vast number of 22-year-old Hugos amassing data that is not useful because Absolutely. the only way you can get useful data is to not have cognitive biases in the collection of the data. That's what I was saying. Yeah, absolutely. We all have a Hugo inside of us. And also I'd like to clarify that by saying that Daniel Kahneman is is not some kind of rational logic perfection machine he's flesh and blood like the rest of us and i he had a new book out this year about noise uh which i haven't read but it sounds interesting in the sense that it's um to do with kind of what we're talking about like, for, like just as an example that i remember he looked at lots of data on kind of identical crimes and the convictions delivered by judges and depend and he looked at some variables like the weather and he could so let's say he took a hundred examples lunch yeah lunch is another good one lunch is a good one a hundred examples of similar kinds of people doing similar kinds of shoplifting on a sunny day they went to prison on a rainy day um they got off with a almost incidental fine or the other way around um and Obviously, those judges have spent a lifetime training to get... I mean, it's extremely hard to be a judge. Um, you, you don't just rock up with, uh, as 22-year-old Hugo, with a B in business studies. Um, so even those judges are entirely susceptible to whether the sun is in front of or behind the cloud. Oh, no, the sun's never in front of the cloud. As to whether the sun is shining or if there's cloud... Um, and therefore, I would say that Daniel Kahneman himself is likely to have to work hard every single time to eliminate his own biases. Just because he knows all about this stuff doesn't mean that it's automatic. Exactly. Stop there. That's that's there. There we go. We got there in the end. Just because the world leader in thinking about um, and remember, just just a quick backtrack. Daniel Kahneman is not necessarily writing about this kind of phrase cognitive distortions it very much is from the cognitive behavioral school it's a it's one way of interpreting this kind of problem that we're trying to look at today which is this rapid information analysis that we use as individuals and also that longer term information analysis and processing the conscious thoughts we have um 
the way that we take on board our experiences and process them and turn them into beliefs, uh, behavior patterns and reactions to others and, and the way that it affects our relationships and our, you know, goals and our desires from life and the way that we view ourselves. Even Daniel Kahneman, who is at the top of his game and is top of, you know, uh, uh, the research world, it, it has, has to deal with this. You're right. It is a lot of hard work if you want to battle your way through this and be more rational, in essence, be more rational, but also be aware of your own irrationality, but also be able to live with the consequences of that and also let the consequences of that irrationality not affect you in a way that is psychologically, emotionally and physically damaging. And can I just go back to the um, cognitive bias sort of like um, uh, corporate racism quiz because I don't know how flippant I sounded but let me just give two different scenarios starting with the less flippant one so let's say Daniel Kahneman wanted to find out if I James Hall am racist because of some unconscious biases that I'm obviously not aware of I would relish that procedure I would look forward to the data that I would predict would be of some value, regardless of what it says. So regardless, however it turns out, yes, I have unconscious biases, no, I have none, or something uninterestingly in the middle. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would go through that process for the, um, the utility of better understanding my behaviour. So in other words, I'm not dismissing any kind i'm not just dis, i'm not just doing a blanket dismissal of unconscious bias training which is something i hear about a lot at the moment is like since the death of george floyd my um assumption is that pr people in corporations all over the world are trying to make sure that their company is not an identical pattern of the Minneapolis Police Department full of racist people. And if, you know, Pauline on the front desk had a gun, she would shoot every black person that came into the hotel uh, without even asking whether or not they had a reservation because Pauline is just an extreme racist. I'm not dismissing the idea of wanting to know that information because I want to know everything that can be known. So I do not dismiss the idea of um, wanting to learn about whether unconscious bias exists. Well, I mean, we assume that, of course, it exists, and therefore, of course, that explains racism. But in the sense of... I couldn't tell you exactly why racism exists or who is racist, when, where and why right now. And so therefore, if there were to be information that would shed light on that, it would be fascinating. And the last thing I'm doing is standing here saying, nope, not interested, don't want to know. What I'm saying is that 22-year-old Hugo, who has watched some popular current affairs shows, have led him to the following unconscious biases of his own number one all white people are racist number two racism is everywhere number three the minneapolis police department is just the tip of the iceberg and his regional hotel chain in the midlands is no different to the minneapolis 
police department. So what happens in the Minneapolis police department obviously also happens in his regional branch of a hotel chain in the Midlands in the UK. And so already we're on generalization, black and, and black and so black and white thinking, everyone is either extremely racist or not at all racist. Generalization, what happens in Minneapolis happens in my hotel, uh, police happens in my regional hotel reception and negativity because one high profile case of racism is on my mind i assume that everyone who walks into this hotel um is racist and and, and that's only three biases and without him factoring into um his own thinking and his own preparation of some kind of whatever you, whatever it's going to be hr quiz with 100 questions he has basically just written unconscious bias into something that he thinks is a neutral way of getting rid of Pauline the receptionist's unconscious racism. So what he thinks, he's already he's, he's, he's assumed that white Pauline, the receptionist of a hotel in the Midlands, is obviously racist, and therefore the customers of that hotel get a different customer service experience depending on their skin colour, and he has taken it upon himself to come in with his superhero cape, um, to save the world from the evil that is racism. And in his, his small part in that is to make it so that whoever comes into his regional hotel, for which he's the manager or the HR manager, whatever, regardless of their skin colour, they will never get biased customer service on that basis. And he will make that the status quo and therefore take the bad old dark ages from before he was in his position of um, co cognitive bias towards skin colour. He will eliminate that because he's a superhero and he will create a utopian future where there is no racist, racism in his regional hotel reception. But And that's what he thinks he's doing. But what he's doing is actually creating a test that is absolutely riddled with his own cognitive biases and therefore the data is worth nothing potentially yes i mean there is a lot of um suspension of disbelief in the story but the message i'm guessing is relatively true that unless you make yourself aware of all of the different ways that you as an individual can um you know distort the information that's coming in that can have a broader effect on the way that you then perform on the way that you interact on the messages that you send out to other people um so yeah it can affect your behaviors and your beliefs and i think that's the most important key message you know cognitive distortions can affect your mental health your physical well-being your relationships your values and your beliefs if you're not cleansing the data as it's coming in or cleansing the data when you get a moment to really think about and analyse what it is that you're, you think you're learning or you think that you know, then you will make decisions based on bad data. So if, say, for example, in terms of racism, um, Martin Luther King is a 1 and Adolf Hitler is a 10, Pauline on the reception of this regional hotel is maybe a 2 or a 3. If we get Daniel Kahneman to do a um, an unconscious bias test to see if Pauline is giving different customer service to clients of the hotel depending on their skin colour, Daniel Kahneman 
if he does if he's absolutely on form with all of his 80 years of experience uh, and he takes enough time to think both fast and slow about the way he designs the test the outcome is probably going to put Pauline somewhere close to two or three he's not going to say she's a zero he's not going to say she's a 10 whereas Hugo comes along with his his own implicit bias he thinks that he's saving the world and he kind of wants to prove that Pauline is a seven or an eight and that he can reveal that to her and bring her down to a zero because he's a super he's a superhero yeah I mean it, it's a extreme but a reasonable <laughs> example <laughs> bloody Hugo so number four <laughs> Yeah, number four. Um, Let's see if we can get to five. <laughs> we'll do our best. So number four is uh, is disqualifying or discounting the positive. Um, this is where you acknowledge and understand that you've had positive experiences, but you say that they don't count towards you know who you are. You don't embrace them. So lots of positive feedback, one negative feedback, same example, but at the same time, you just think you can see that the positives are there, but you don't think they're true. You don't hold any value to them. You will find ways to to um, to discount that. To all the good feedback that you got, you can you analyze it to say that it's not. true true that you will you'll find examples um the negative examples outweigh those positives so the positives don't exist at all i'm sure someone out there thinks that is a distinct number four on the list but we've definitely talked all about this i yep. i said in the recording of this podcast you give me nine positive bits of information and one negative one and i dwell on the negative one and that was number two or three in the list and now number four is exactly the same it's, it, no, it's not exactly the same. There's lots of overlap, but this is about finding ways to disprove those positive. The other one is about focusing very specifically on the negatives. Like your brain is drawn to the negative statements and that is what it focuses on. That is what it remembers. This is where you can say, yes, that was said to me or yes, that did happen or yes, I did win or yes, I did pass those tests. But those tests aren't relevant because of this negative okay i i'm happy to accept that there is some kind of venn diagram here it's not just a perfect circle wherein numbers three and four are entirely encased in the same perfect circle but i would say that let's imagine you've got a small square napkin on the table and you have a cup of coffee and you put the cup of coffee in the middle of the napkin and lift it up and there's quite a satisfying brown ring perfectly where you put the cup of coffee you decide that you're going to put the coffee down exact see if you can get it exactly in that same space again a second time and then you lift yeah. it up and actually it was a little bit to the right so now you've got kind of like two rings that are almost the same but not quite and you didn't do as well as you hoped you would that's the kind okay. of venn diagram that we're talking about between numbers three and four <laughs> if you like if you like so do you want to yawn your way through number five and then we'll call it a day <laughs> um i i suppose we might you know if 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 to, if today if today your your um raison d'etre is to discount the um, cognitive distortions as much as is humanly possible, rather than just accept that this is the cognitive behavioural 
theory's way of describing unhelpful thinking styles and patterns to someone who is in therapy or to someone who's finding themselves very low in mood or someone who has really poor self-esteem then yeah maybe we we should stop but if you if you if you want to go through and maybe just think about how these are different ways that each individual might understand or experience the same kind of coffee stain then yeah you know what do you want to do james i know i definitely find this extremely valuable the the only <laughs> thing just let me try and be of as course. clear as possible <laughs> the only thing i don't like is the idea that someone has found six things and decided to turn them into the the top 10 unconscious biases and therefore at least four of them are exactly the same as other ones on the list yeah yeah i I see that but i suppose one person might do the you know if there is that venn diagram one person might be able to like associate more or, or understand one example more than another you know, and therefore that, that they the the wording, the explanation of it as given by a therapist. Because remember, I am not a cognitive behavioural therapist. I'm going from what I remember, what I read in David Burns' book almost twenty years ago. Although I have used it a few times since, what I understand from my own CBT, and also from the PositivePsychology.com website, and from would you believe it, accidentally a Bing search that I did earlier. Um, so I'm just. <laughs> trying to put some of the pieces together. So it may well be that if you went to the websites and got some books on this, you'd have a much clearer understanding of the differentiation between categories one, two, three, four, five, six, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. I I genuinely want to hear number five. (laughs) Mind reading. Jumping to conclusions. Um, this is where you imagine that you know what someone else is thinking about you and you hold on to that sort of interpretation of their behaviour and their voice and their tone as being um, a negative, um, critical and truthful belief. So James hates me and finds me irritating. I'm, I know he does. Um, how, how do you know he does? Oh, I, I just I know I can I can sense it by the way he looks at me or the way he you know the way he reacts to me. Has James ever told you that he hates you and thinks you're an awful human being? No, no, I just know it. So you might see someone on the platform opposite you at a train station, and um, they've got a, like a stern look on their face, or you know, and that look is directed at you in your mind you've you've made this assumption you've jumped to a conclusion that that person or your boss in a bad mood on the day oh i've caused that bad mood you've got no external or um specific reason to know that as a case you haven't tested it but you have sort of mind read you've assumed what is in someone else's mind and you use that as possibly evidence of all of the, the you know to 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 support the disqualifying of the positive, to support the mental filter and overgeneralization and all or nothing thinking. It can be like a way of adding extra proof in your head that you're a bad person, you're not worthy, people hate you, people don't like you by mind reading. There was something that I wanted to say earlier and I knew it was... uh, I was shoehorning in something I wanted to say at an inappropriate time, so I've left it 
for later and it's about Daniel Kahneman and some of the interviews I've heard him give this year based on him releasing a book this year and firstly uh, he talked about flow and Mikhail Chitsnikli who is Mikhaili yes don't just just focus firstly he was talking about flow and I don't know if I, I I don't know that I necessarily have uh, want to want to say anything about what he said. It's just that he was talking about flow, which was nice. Okay, send send me the link and I'll have a little look. The th- yeah, I'm just I also I'm not sure exactly in which interview he was talking about flow. It was possibly um, on a podcast with Coleman Hughes, possibly on one with Sam Harris, or possibly the psychology podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. Those are the three interviews that I've listened to. And in one of them, he talks about flow. Then um, another thing was that he was talking about psychoanalysis. And this was kind of a throwaway comment. He didn't go into detail. Well, if it, if it was, a, I can't remember if it was a specific question or if it just came up. But if it was a specific question, he gave a kind of quick answer. And then the interviewer was satisfied and moved on. Whereas I wanted him to talk on this subject for the next hour. He said, basically, all psychoanalysis is cognitively biased guesswork. I don't value any of it. That's not to say that it can't randomly be useful. And if it's useful for someone, great. But there's no way I would spend my money on psychoanalysis, uh, me in my economist shoes right now uh, is analysing the data of how best to spend my money and it's definitely not psychoanalysis Blimey. which I found interesting because obviously he's someone who's spent his life working in psychology and from a data driven perspective and the way he is is very much a case of like let me just give the overarching value of my wanting to include this in the conversation which is that to use a cliche, if there's only one book you read on this topic, make it Daniel Kahneman Fast and Slow. Yep. Agreed. And hang on a second, I'm just gonna say agreed from what I know, because that's the one book that I would hold above all others in this area. Although there are, of course, lots of other books that can probably add to that. And there's lots of books that I've got no idea about that potentially could even be better than that. Okay. And so for him to be so dismissive of psychoanalysis obviously this goes back to our episode from series four when um i came to the start of the podcast indignant that john ronson had in an interview with russell brand dismissed the whole realm of psychoanalysis because he tried it and it was he found it useless and when he switched to cognitive behavioral therapy he thought finally i found a practical thing that's actually useful to me and from my lofty snooty position i said oh you philistine do you not understand are you too stupid to understand the value of 10 years of of insightful psychoanalysis you're so short-sighted and narrow-minded that all you t- all you can do is process this this fad this gimmick of cbt which is wallpapering over the cracks that's how i came to that episode and you responded to me by giving me an example that completely changed my mind on it which was if someone is suicidal which is 
better. You tell them, well, in 10 years' time, you're going to be wonderfully divine and enlightened, or you say, okay, we have a known successful process that will change your life in a short amount of time. And then after that, if you want to spend 10 years on the couch, feel free, but I'm going to save your life with CBT. And then I realized, okay, yes, um, I'm just being head in the clouds with my lofty idea that everyone should have uh, 10 years of divine psychoanalysis and they should dismiss that silly fad of CBT. And today, our essentially, our uh, conversation is entirely about cognitive behavioral therapy and but viewed in the context of the the kinds of research that Daniel Kahneman does and so Daniel Kahneman whose opinion I value on this topic higher than John Ronson because John Ronson is a kind of a punter who has just come to it with his unitary singular personal experience as opposed to data across countries and patients and research centers um daniel kahneman has basically come to more or less the same conclusion as john ronson um yeah i think perhaps what daniel kahneman might i don't know you let you say it was a flyaway throwaway comment um i'd maybe ask him this you know would would you would you disagree with or how would you argue with the thought that someone going into longer term psychoanalysis might enable them to develop their slower thinking systems and their more analytical and critical um thinking set techniques and styles when they have been more used to making assumptions working in that very fast is it type one thinking was it type a thinking I've, I've gone completely blank he calls them system one and system two but he 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 always says in all of his interviews as a as a as a perennial clarification there isn't a there isn't really in true real fact yeah yeah, yeah a system yeah, one yeah, and a yeah. system two it's just words yeah, yeah. that he thought helped uh differentiate yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and I think perhaps you know that is that that is him type one thinking then or, or systems one thinking saying you know like oh, I wouldn't use psychotherapy if he'd have thought a little bit longer about it he may well have thought okay actually yeah spending an hour or a week it with you know a kind of a stream of consciousness ability to explore thoughts and feelings actually might enable people to develop critical thinking analytical thinking and exploring what is and isn't useful he probably my guess would be that he could agree that there is some use to that. Um, but yeah, in terms of looking at the data and thinking, does psychoanalysis classically solve the problems? Um, you know, that's the, the, the problem is that there, there are very, very few studies with very tenuous positive results. Tenuous, is that the right word? Um, saying that psychoanalysis is helpful. It's not like that. It's a, It's an experiential thing. It isn't a... Uh, and a, a specific outcome-driven experience, you know, like CBT is. Um, they, they don't. You can't. You can't do that kind of data analysis on it. And when they do try to do it, it's pretty much sneered at because it's, you know, you can't. You can't um, uh, put numbers to what's going on in basically a almost like an artistic, creative 
space. Like you can't. Um, so yeah, I'd challenge him on that, and I'd be really interested to hear what his reply was. So Daniel, if you're listening, get in touch with Private Practice Podcast. <laughs> That's privatepracticepodcast.net. And uh, if you write a message in on the contact us page and press submit. I think it comes to us. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, at the moment, we're thinking very slowly about how to respond to any of the <laughs> listeners. James, we probably need to have a little look into that in case we've got some fan mail there that we should have opened. Because most of our fan mail comes through the post, of course. No, um, all of our fan mail comes from the listener who sends furiously worded text messages to me. I cannot wait to have an episode all about that, especially with, you know, being such a long, long gap between our recent episodes and uh, and and our pre or or, or early COVID episodes. Um, listen, I, I think we might need to take a pause there. We do, but also we committed to something last week and you, when you commit to something, you, you your uh, frame, state of mind is... I am committing to this thing now and next time, whether I commit to it or not is completely irrelevant. My frame of mind is I am committing to something now, therefore it's set in stone and nothing can change it. So obviously, as far as I'm concerned, it is imperative that that we um, play Challenge Dan with Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power to see if we can catch him out and prove that he's a psychopath. Whereas Dan is thinking that's totally unnecessary. It's nothing to do with the conversation. It's a, it's a, it's a jarring thing to shove in at the end. It's you being slightly autistic and, frankly, the listener is not serviced. It's only you, James, servicing yourself by doing that. Is that an accurate um, estimation of what's going on if I try and shove this in right now? No, not at all. I really enjoy um, uh, all of our little bits and pieces that you you, you come up with. Um, and I love having little bits and pieces in a podcast, you know. It's like, ooh, this section, we could have it again, we could have its own theme tune. What's it called? Is Dan a, is secretly a psychopath? Okay, so we, we I'll have to come up with some more music, but I'm thinking like, power, power, power! Something like that. Okay, you know. so... yeah. Uh, we started with law number 13 last week. This time, law number three, conceal your intentions. Keep people off balance and in the dark by never revealing the purpose behind your actions. If they have no clue what you're up to, they cannot prepare a defence. Guide them far enough down the wrong path, envelop them in enough smoke, and by the time they realise your intentions, it will be too late. Do you do that? Sorry, could you just give me the first part of that again, please? Sorry. Keep people off balance and in the dark by never revealing the purpose behind your actions. If they have no clue what you're up to, they cannot prepare a defence. I mean, that's very much the art of war, isn't it? That, that kind of thing. It's, it's, that's, that's, old, that's, that's old school Machiavellianism. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I don't like that at all. Um, in my experience at work, I found the exact opposite is true um and and perhaps i go into think into projects with a different mindset that if people don't want to be on board with those projects then i don't really want them on board with the project so creating a smoke screen and and you know not letting people know my true intentions is not really my modus operandi in terms of like getting people on board 
But, however, saying that, um, going into a phone call and using what might be considered a kind of a smoke screen, you know, talking around a topic, talking about the... Uh, again, I'm talking about like the benefits to someone else, um, but but that was law 13. Maybe, maybe not coming straight out with what it is I want that person to do for me is probably something useful. But I wouldn't explain it in that way, creating a smoke screen and hiding true intentions. No, I wouldn't. It's not. That's not really me, man. So maybe you do that to some extent and you tell yourself that you're not the kind of Machiavellian person who would do that, you benefit from the advantages of that tried and tested wisdom passed through the generations and tried and tested on many a battlefield and in many a a court of power. And Yet at the same time, we're on the other side of humanist psychology and you have been trained as a mental health nurse. And so it's intolerable for you to think of yourself as someone operating in that Machiavellian way. And so when you do do it, you repackage it as something else. Yeah, possibly. I mean, if you think about when I was an eating disorder specialist nurse, there there is a part of that treatment which involves someone who's a low weight having to gain weight. That is not something that you focus on for a long period of time. Although you might, you know, maybe mention it in passing the weight gain. You focus on everything around that rather than the weight gain. So if you're thinking that the true intention is for me to make a person gain weight, you know, ah, smoke screen, yeah, like, okay you're not focusing on that because it's incredibly distressing for that other person so for the patient um but but also hang on let me see if i've understood this situation a thin person comes into the room your exclusive purpose is to get them up to a healthy weight but Mm. the last thing you're going to do is reveal your intention because it would be distressing to them so you and I'm going to use my words, not your words, create all kinds of smoke and mirrors to make them think that they're on a um, journey of discovery into some kind of realm that suits them. But actually, you're just trying to make them a healthy, fuller figure. No, no, absolutely not. Like the, the main purpose is to enable someone to live a happier, more fulfilling life um, with a more manageable mood and a, uh, a more positive constructive outlook and can they do that remaining extremely skinny with their exact same diet and potentially Uh, habits of throwing up food when they eat it well i mean that is a massively debatable point and be an episode in itself and i would say generally no but at times people can remain a low weight and achieve a lot of what they want from life with a relatively constructive mindset however we would suggest as a group of clinicians that being a higher weight is healthier uh, and having a healthier body is easier to have a healthier mind and mental state but yeah i I think these these rules of power that you know we're arguing through here you potentially there is some of the technique that could be used to the advantage but it would never be it wouldn't we would never say it in that way and we would never push it as if and also it's not me who is gaining from that I am not but gaining. Hold on a minute. I'm not trying. I'm, I'm not asking you the question. 
does the NHS literally train its staff to be Machiavellian? And therefore, the answer is obviously no. I'm asking, are you, Dan, to some extent, the carrier of these Machiavellian characteristics, which as a concept is intolerable to you and therefore you tell yourself that you're nothing to do with that. Wait, 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 wait. I don't think as a concept it's intolerable to me, but I think there's an interpretation of these techniques that can be used in a positive, you know, proactive, constructive, healthy, woke way. So so you can basically take the Machiavellian 48 Laws of Power and reword them so they sound like humanist psychology. Yeah, basically, I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he can, yeah. I mean, I think like that author, whatever his name is, he knows what he's doing. He is appealing to a certain group of people. He's appealing to a masculine, and I don't just mean men, a masculine, winning, better than you, red personality type, alpha male. I want, you know, someone that, that wants to achieve and win and earn and status. He's a, he wants those people to buy the book, you know, and also people who are interested in the concepts like us, and we will. But, like, it's almost like a, uh, do you want to be the best? Fuck, yeah, power, uh, uh. Like, he could, he could totally have done it in a kind of a woke way. You know, the best way to encourage someone to achieve their goals is sometimes not to give them all of the information up front. It's actually to think about how we can help that person focus on something at the end of the pathway rather than all of the trees around them, which it finds so frightening and scary to look at. So let's look at what's at the end of that dark tunnel of trees. Oh, it's a green Everglade forest. And so, you know, it's basically the same fucking thing. You're not going to be like, look, dark trees, look what's in the trees, you know. And if we were looking at a real world example of the dark forest and the dark trees and me getting what I want, I want this team to build together to get at the end with the, whatever the project outcome is. I want the people who I'm on the phone to to get on board with that. So I'm not going to say, oh, right, this project will be incredibly difficult. We're going to have to go on this long journey. There's going to be a lot of effort involved. We are going to actually get something that I want, which is a new complete team achieving a project. We don't do that. We talk about the, for the, the opening and clearing at the end of the forest and the beautiful lake that's there. And we guide them there without having to look at those things because I'm keeping those in mind. Everything you've just said is one of your best ever, in my view, contributions to this podcast, beautifully illustrated with the, the concept of the trees in the forest. And so do you want to end on that extremely positive feedback about you being good? Or do you want me to keep talking until I start criticizing you and slamming your life choices? No, I think my life choices have been slammed enough. And uh, I thank you for that. It really has helped make me a stronger, better person. Um, what I will say is we're going to come back to the topics of uh, cognitive distortion. We didn't even really get on to the, you know, um, the side topic or the, the concurrent topic of um, cognitive bias. And we're going to have another episode at least of this because I think there's a, there's a lot in it. So listen, uh, for today, that's all from me at the Private Practice Podcast Studios in London. I am Daniel P. Brown. And it's also all from me in Lyon. I'm not going to do a solo hour uh, <laughs> in continuation. <laughs> Although there's an idea for a new feature. Mm. James yes. carries on. <laughs> 
Wow. All right. Goodbye, listener. Thank you. Preston from the Ordinary Boys. 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 Preston from the Ordinary Boys.